This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Welcome back to another episode of 50 Miles Per Hour and yet another detour today. In the last episode, Speed finally has a bad guy, two weeks into shooting. After just about everyone with a pulse turned down the role of Howard Payne, an ex-bomb squad police officer holding a city bus full of passengers for ransom, the production has landed an American icon in the role, Dennis Hopper. And if anyone involved with this movie deserves a sort of sidebar treatment, it's him. And I couldn't think of anyone better to come on and speak to Hopper's place in cinema history and what he brings to a movie like Speed than author, journalist, and film historian Mark Harris. So, Mark, first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Mark was sort of center stage for much of the fodder that this podcast trades in in his post as a columnist and editor at Entertainment Weekly in the 90s. And he's been a contributor to Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, Grantland, countless outlets. Most importantly, he's the author of a number of must-read books about the film business and its participants, most recently the biography Mike Nichols' A Life, and perhaps most notably for these proceedings, Pictures at a Revolution, which examined the birth of the new Hollywood through the lens of the films of 1967. And what better segue to our guy today than that? And, you know, before I dig in uh, to Dennis Hopper here, Mark, I want to know, did you ever meet him and interview him? Uh, no, I, I definitely never interviewed him. I am not sure if I met him or not. I could have, but but if I did, it was it was very much in passing. Yeah, I, he he walked past me at a screening one time. That's all I got. Like, I, <laughs> That'll I, be I, about I, it. Yeah, I'm so bummed. It's like it's it's my biggest regret in this entire pursuit is that I can't interview Dennis Hopper. He passed away in 2010 at the age of 74. And uh, just want to knock out some requisite bio information real quick. Uh, Dennis was born uh, May 17th, 1936, which makes him a Taurus. For some reason, I've been throwing out the astrological signs on, on this. So, so Hopper's a Taurus. Uh, he was born smack dab in the middle of the country in Dodge City, Kansas. And, uh, you know, there was this quote that I saw from him. He was on uh, Carson in 91. It was the only time he ever did the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I think. And uh, Carson asked him, what got you into acting? And he said, well, I was a farm boy from Kansas, and I wanted to know where all the trains were going. And <laughs> I think he probably said that a couple of times over the years, but that just speaks to me. Like, I don't know. I love that. Like, he couldn't be contained. He wanted to know what was out there. And, and he said movies were an escape for him, too, being in the Dust Bowl. Uh, so indeed, he was drawn to acting in high school uh, in the mid-1950s. He went under contract to Warner Brothers at 18 years old, and he appeared in films with James Dean right out of the gate in Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. I mean, what a way to start. He was in John Sturgis's gunfight at the OK Corral in 1957. 
And then he did a film called From Hell to Texas. And this is where I want to bring you in. If you might know more about this, it, it seems like a myth. Uh, maybe it's not. Uh, the, the story goes that he and Henry Hathaway, the director, clashed. And uh, it, it was so, so bad that Dennis basically forced 80 takes out of the guy. And Hathaway said at the end of all of that, like, you're never going to work in Hollywood again. And he was blacklisted for a bit. Have you have you heard this story? Do you know more about uh, that? I, I've heard. I I don't know more about it. It's one of those great sort of Hollywood career stories, and I think the the only part of it that I don't entirely trust is uh, the number eighty, um, which, which it feels like Henry Hathaway's uh, spirit, or at least patience, would have broken uh, long before eighty. But but it's a great story because um, uh, you know as as. Nora Ephron once wrote and wrote for scripts. It may not be true, but it feels true. Um, it 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 feels like um, Dennis Hopper pushing against uh, a kind of just wrote automatic. Let's get it done. This is just product kind of sensibility, um, and bringing you know what would later come to be known as his um, his signature intensity to you know this a little bit of a throwaway you know yeah work day or movie or whatever yeah totally i also don't know if there was 80 takes of anything back then i mean that's right (laughs) i mean the take three was was a real rarity but 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 you you know those stories exist for a reason and it's it's um to convey something both about uh who he was and what he was working with and what he was working against, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, it's well, funny. I, in, in preparing for this, of course, uh, the first place I went was to IMDB and I hate starting that way because I feel like it's, it's the same thing as starting as an essay saying, you know, Webster's dictionary defines Dennis Hopper as, <laughs> but he has over 200 credits. I mean, that really shocked me. And I think once you look at those credits, um, it's a really interesting indication of how many worlds, even by that point, by the by the time of this uh, head-on confrontation with Henry Hathaway, how many different worlds he lived in. Um, mm-hmm. Because the guy was just... I mean, above everything else, he was a working actor. He wasn't uh he, he wasn't only sort of an old Hollywood trainee. He wasn't only a product of the new Hollywood. He was he was, you know, uh we'll we'll get to that, but he was already over 30 by the time, you know, don't trust anyone over 30 kicked in. Um and uh he I I mean I, I think what's really stunning to me is is just his work ethic from the very beginning um this guy worked all the time there's barely a, a tv series from um the 1950s or early 1960s from you know gunsmoke to petticoat junction that he didn't you know do a week on absolutely i mean he clearly was in love with the the, the form and and i'm fascinated by the fact that he does have a foot in kind of two eras uh, to your point you were making there i mean we'll get to that but just He's part of this transition in such a fascinating way. Uh, after this incident with Hathaway, he went on to the actor's studio, trained with Lee Strasberg there. 
His first lead role. Have you ever seen Night Tide, Curtis Harrington? Yes. What a weird uh, movie. A really weird movie. It's one of those uh, things where you you realize that um, studios and, and production companies made so many movies back then. There was such an incredible need for product that every once in a while, some oddball thing could sneak through, you know, that, that, that night tide definitely does not. Well, you talk about it a little bit, but it doesn't feel like a movie that went through uh, a committee of people saying, you have to do that. And I don't have a lot to say about it. It's, it's just, it's, it's like a fever dream when you watch this movie, the, the, the coloring, the, the, the way just the, the photography is very strange. He plays a sailor on leave. And he and he meets this girl who is uh, performing as a mermaid, and I, I guess think she's really a mermaid. It's a very strange movie. I mean, it's got like Nightmare Alley vibes almost. I was gonna say when you from that description, it sounds like you're describing like a, a Del Toro movie. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, totally. He should remake it. I mean, it's it's wild. Uh, but that was his first leading role, and and it's it's in this period where he's kind of on the outs in the industry, you know. Uh, and he says he credits John Wayne with saving his career or, or, or in this period uh, because he convinced Hathaway to bring him on to the Sons of Katie Elder. And then they did True Grit together as well. And the story goes it was because basically because he was married to Brooke Hayward, who was actress Margaret Sullivan's daughter. And so Henry Hathaway was like, you married a good Irish woman's daughter and you're a good actor, so we'll hire you. And right. Then, and then like, so so he's literally a son or a son-in-law of old Hollywood. Like his, his roots go, go deep. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because if you see him in some of the, the early stuff that we're talking about, um, he's handsome. You, you can see why he got work, but he's not movie star handsome. He's not like, you don't look at him and automatically think, oh, this guy's going to be uh you know a, a leading man for his entire career for sure he's a little you know a little just a little odder and more interesting than than he is conventionally handsome and that often you know in the history of hollywood means you're gonna have a much more interesting career uh than if you were just a straight up you know poster boy yeah like he's not james dean he's the guy that gets in a fight with james dean right right a little <laughs> yeah. dark a little scary um maybe a little haunted a little brooding um but but uh he he might be more the guy who wants to get the girl than the guy who gets the girl right and this relationship with john wayne is fascinating to me it almost seems like fodder for a book if you're looking to add anything else to your till of projects (laughs) uh because the you know he dennis was really into the method uh wayne hated the method method acting and they clashed over stuff like that but also uh you know, Wayne, there's a story about how Wayne like wanted to kill him because he was like, where is that commie bastard? Because he was mad that his daughter, John Wayne's daughter, had heard a Stokely Carmichael speech at UCLA. <laughs> and there, and Alex Cox wrote something like, yeah, John Wayne basically blamed Dennis Hopper for the 60s. <laughs> Which I just think is hilarious. I mean, it's just this fascinating um, relationship and, and that they worked together a couple of times. And this is that foot in that older Hollywood. And when you see Dennis Hopper in True Grit, that's a completely different way to go about whatever he's doing in that movie opposite John Wayne. It's like the clash is fascinating in such a great way. Right. It's almost like Hopper's bilingual. I mean, it's like he, he 
he's one of the very few um, American uh, movie actors who you can say represents something both about the rebellion of the 1950s and about the rebellion of the 1960s. And yet at the same time, throughout both decades, he's doing like the oldest form, uh, like the, the the oldest form of movie making, like Westerns, you know, there you didn't get much more um, reactionary than late 1960s Westerns. And, and True Grit, it, True Grit isn't like, I mean, it's based on a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really good movie. It's based on a uh, novel by a great writer. Um, but um, it's not, it's not like an anti-Western. It's not like one of those, uh, sort of dark revisionist westerns that would come along in, in something like you know Bad Company just a couple of years later. It's John Wayne. The 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 unusual part of it is that Wayne is playing kind of old and worn out and and you know but but it's a it's a it's a western you know it's a it's a straight up western that speaks a language that movies have been speaking for like forty years by that point and and there's Dennis Hopper understanding really well how to adapt himself to that form. And, you know, I, I say that because, you know, I think when you say the name Dennis Hopper, no matter what role you flash on first, and I think there's one that people pretty jump to pretty quickly in the 1980s. Um, the first thing you think is kind of like crazy rebel and, uh, or, or dangerous guy. And, so it's an interesting counterweight to that that he, he really was was like a, a a working actor who didn't suddenly emerge in the mid or late 1960s but had just like you know been training and studying and also working and working and working um you know for at least a decade before people really started to know who he was yeah and we haven't even gotten to now we do uh easy rider which would be the film he would uh, direct and and he got an Oscar nomination for screenplay with Peter Fonda and Terry Southern. Uh, so what's the significance of this film? I, I just, it's an obvious answer, but I just want to hear you say it. Well, you know, we were just talking about true grit and easy rider uh, came out the same year. And it's, you know, it's one of those movies where you, you can see in a single movie, the switch over from old to new. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's this uh, people, people refer to it then as a hippie movie, you know, a, a movie, uh, about, a, a sort of road trip, um, in, into the West, into the wild where, you know, I, ideas about the greatness of America kind of get dismantled along the way instead of, you know, enhanced. It was, um, it sort of borrows the physical landscape of Westerns to do something really, really different. Um, and, you know, the, the, the interesting, I, I think it's a really good introduction to um, uh, Dennis Hopper in a way, because it's not, um, it's not an out of control movie. It's a movie that simulates out of controlness. Um, and it's not a movie made by um, uh, kids. Uh, it, Dennis Hopper was young, but he was 32 or 33 when it came out. Um, so he wasn't 
the the generation that was 19 or 20 in um in 1969 you know the emerging hippie generation he was someone who had been around uh, long enough and seen enough to bring a little bit of perspective to things and and you know uh part of the easy rider is that you know the idea that even the ideals of a younger generation uh, are not invulnerable to you know getting screwed up and 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 crashing um so mm-hmm. so you know that it's in a strange way it, it's it's a controlled movie like he he knows what he's he knows what he wants to do with it. It's not just this kind of slapdash, crazy, let's make a movie thing, even though there, there are aspects of it that are, uh, you know, on the fly and and they, they didn't spend a ton of money on it or a ton of time on it or anything because um, they didn't have a ton of money or a ton of time. Um, but but it's not um, it's not casual. It's a it's a it's a movie that's carefully made to feel casual. And and I think that's there's something about the essence of um uh Dennis Hopper in that in that you know when we get into his later performances you get to like crazy out of control uh villain work a lot of the time and yet you know those characters are in the hands of someone who really understands acting and really understands what the camera does and how a face relates to the camera and how to use your face and your voice and your body and your pitch and your attitude to create the effects you want to create on screen. So. Yeah. It's that whole thing about knowing what the rules are to know how to break them. And uh, I think that's, there's, there's part of that in there, but yeah, there's, I think it was a review or something. Someone said that no one embodies the lost idealism of the sixties more than Dennis Hopper. They were writing about uh, Easy Rider, and I think that says it. Yeah, that's a lovely line because you know he he Dennis Hopper always looks like he lost something, you know, yeah. something yeah. that he's not going to tell you. You know that there's so, as soon as he gets to be like you know thirty five or forty, but not older than that. There's like so many of his roles just convey almost out of the outside of the text sometimes the fact that he's been through it, you know, yeah. that, that there's history there. Yeah. Um, I guess the opposite of control and maybe uh, the last movie, which would be his next film, 1971, <laughs> uh, a total disaster. Uh, I don't know that I've ever made it through it all the way. Um, it's, it's a fee talk about a fever dream. I mean, it's, would you like to take a stab at this? I mean, it's, it's, uh... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> It's I, I I'm not sure that I've made it all the way through, you know, the the catastrophes of the late 60s and early 70s in terms of movie making were really like loud catastrophes like this. This was not a subtle it 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 does. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've just tried to make a case that um, Easy Rider is carefully constructed to sort of feel off the rails. Sometimes the last movie is off the rails. Right. It killed his momentum. I mean, it's it's like exactly the moment when he needed to launch after Easy Rider and this movie happened. And uh, for a guy who was already sort of clearly given his interactions with older Hollywood and stuff, it like seemed always on the verge of just being blacklisted or something. 
uh, it wasn't, it didn't do him any favors. Uh, right. Like and that. you know, when, when we talk about this transition from the old Hollywood to the new Hollywood, uh, it, I think it's important to remember that the old Hollywood did not vanish. It turned into something different starting in the late 1960s and the early seventies, but old Hollywood was like airport, you know, I, I mean, it, it, there were, there were big kind of establishment Hollywood, uh, movies in the, throughout the 70s that still represented the kind of strong controlling hand of movie studios as opposed to the individual um vision of directors and and they they weren't done under the literal studio system that had existed before then but they were still you know airport which was a huge hit in 1970 is a, a producer's and a studio's movie much more than it is obviously a director or a writer or an actor's movie, although there's some very good actors in it. And and I, I bring that movie up because that, that kind of cr created a new template for what non new Hollywood movies of the seventies could be. And those, if, if you want to think about like the airport faction of Hollywood at that time, that faction was very happy to see someone like Dennis Hopper fail with something like the last movie. Cause, because the, the rap on those guys from old Hollywood was they don't know what they're doing. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're all attitude, but no um, discipline. And uh, so that they're, they're not going to make it unless they allow themselves to be, eventually put in harness to how movies are made and and something like um the last movie which really does feel out of control that that was kind of like the proof in a lot of ways that uh, that old hollywood was looking for that that guys like dennis hopper just couldn't cut it you know as as yeah. directors or as filmmakers but I, I just want i pulled up the the plot just because it's hard for me to put into words this is going to make it sound a lot better than it is, but the uh, the last movie, Kansas, it's Dennis Hopper's name, is a stunt coordinator in charge of horses on a western being shot in a small Peruvian village. Following a tragic incident on the set where an actor is killed in a stunt, he decides to quit the movie business and stay in Peru with a local woman. He thinks he has found paradise, but is soon called in to help in a bizarre incident. The Peruvian natives are, quote, filming their own movie with, quote, cameras made of sticks and acting out real Western movie violence as they don't understand movie fakery. Sounds awesome. That is all, like, technically <laughs> true. <laughs> um, and yet it suggests a kind of linearity that yeah. will not be your experience. Uh, you, you, you hear that and you think, oh, this sounds like kind of an American Werner Herzog movie or something. <laughs> exactly, right? It sounds no. like Fitzcarraldo that gone well. Right. Uh, but not at all. Uh, yeah. And then throughout the 70s, a bunch of movies I haven't seen, frankly. Uh, Crush Proof, Kid Blue, Bloodbath, Tracks, Mad Dog Morgan. Have you seen these? No, uh, I, I really haven't seen most of them. And, and you know, the the but but what that tells you is um, he didn't disappear. You know, he, he didn't he he like there's that um, there's that work ethic kicking in. Mm -hmm. You know, he went where the jobs were. Mm -hmm. Um he wasn't a 60s casualty, you know, is his career, as you said, absolutely took a big dip um, in, in the 70s. But it's not one of those dips that results in uh, 
a huge gap in the resume, which you often see with guys like that. He, mm-hmm. he, he mostly kept working, even if it was a really undistinguished material or really not very interesting roles. He didn't, you know, there is this kind of born in the depression, uh, Midwestern work ethic that, you know, that kicks in. You're an actor. You, you, you act, you, you, go get the jobs you can get and you do it. And then you go yeah. on to the next. And I have seen, I imagine you have too, the American friend, uh, them vendors, which is a fantastic movie, uh, based on Ripley's game, the high Smith novel, uh, him and Bruno right. Gans. And, and that's maybe where it begins to turn for Dennis Hopper a little bit, because it's, even though he is the, the most unlikely Tom Ripley of anyone who has ever played Tom Ripley. Like he is, he is nothing like uh, Patricia Highsmith's Tom Ripley, but the American friend is nothing like uh, a Ripley novel. Still, like whatever you can say about it uh, as an adaptation on its own, it's a really interesting, compelling movie. And um, this isn't a five minute part. This is a really, really substantial role. Obviously, he's he's Ripley. And um you know, working for Vim Vendors, the kind of director he probably had not worked with before. So I think that was probably, that movie was the first time in a number of years where people could go, even if it was only an art house audience, and say, oh, Dennis Hopper. There's Dennis Hopper. I haven't seen him in a while, because they probably hadn't seen him in a lot of these um, littler movies uh, that, that he had made in the in the 70s before then. American Friend is like 77, I think. 77, Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting, too, I, I, I like that, uh, you know, Vim Vendors hi- hired him and then he decided since he's got a director in one role, he's going to hire Nicholas Ray for a role and uh, Sam Fuller for a role. It's it's a it's a really cool movie. And if you like Vim Vendors movies, you know that the work of Robbie Mueller, the DP, is like a huge part of the artistry of those films. And it, it's on fire in that way as well. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. And, and so you see it and you start to think, oh, well, maybe... Like, given the company he's in, maybe this is the beginning of of Dennis Hopper as some kind of icon. Like, it's a it's a movie that if if it was your first encounter with Dennis Hopper, um, I think it would encourage you to say, "Oh, that guy's really interesting and unusual, and he doesn't seem like you know a, a, a half a dozen other actors." Like, you can't you can't just automatically put him in you put put you can't automatically put a bunch of other people in that role the way he plays it um so so that was probably the first time in a while that he he really did something distinctive and he probably brought a little something to it in the fact that in the 60s he got into photography and he would be a photographer throughout his his career uh and exhibit around the world and and have a very keen interest in art and that plays an interesting role in, in the kind of character that he's playing uh, in the film, too. So Ripley has to be like a little bit seductive, a little bit gentle. And this is the most this is the most sort of macho, least sexually ambiguous Ripley you're ever going to see. But it's still it's not, you know, a, a straight up tough guy leading man part at all there's the he it it is as you said in this world it's set in the art world and um 
Hopper's very elegant in it. Uh, you know, e- even the way he kind of moves and sits. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. he's playing a guy who, as you know, if you've ever seen uh, any Ripley movie or read the novels, is largely um, self-created. And mm-hmm. even though this, the, even though the American friend doesn't get too deeply into that, um, you can tell that Hopper had it in his head that he knew he wanted to do something with that. Yeah, definitely. And and the relationship between him and Bruno Gans is is uh interesting, unusual. There there's 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 something to it. Like there's there's an undercurrent in the movie, I think, that uh really works. So Yeah, and when you see the movie, you think, Oh, like what what an exactly right pairing, like what a good idea to put these two guys together. Um yeah. without really knowing why. <laughs> totally. Couple of more things, and then uh, Apocalypse Now. Which, what else can be said? Uh, just a manic, great, perfect for him kind of a role. Probably part of what would end up having him typecast in those kind of roles going forward. Uh, you know, to me, the best part about it is him and Brando clashing because he's always clashing with somebody. Might as well clash with Brando too. Right. And I I just love that. Um, and you get a load of all of this in Hearts of Darkness, the the making of documentary of Apocalypse Now. Uh, but boy, uh, huge spark plug in that movie, to say the least. Yeah, and it's also interesting because he's like, it's he's gone from making um, movies in the late 1960s to making uh, uh, one of the first period pieces about that period i mean the apocalypse now is 79 so so it's a little bit of a look back you know and and sort of how you get to enjoy the the era specific wild man authenticity that hopper brings to that part um Mm -hmm. and and you know he's not if he's an out of control element in apocalypse now we we now know that there are so many out of control elements in that that movie that he's he's not you know he's by no means the first one. So it's like Apocalypse Now might as well have included Dennis Hopper uh, in its cast. <laughs> and and uh, after this, he does Out of the Blue, which is he he steps into the role of director here because the original director I don't I don't actually know the circumstances, but he just took over uh, this movie and and kind of reshaped it. I've never seen it. Um, it was not easy to find for a while, but there was a big restoration that screened at the Venice Film Festival in 2019. Have you seen Out of the Blue? I've seen it, but not for a really long time. Yeah. Who do you know who the director was who was who he replaced? Leonard Yakir. Hmm. Okay. If I'm saying the name right. Um, but yeah, he stepped in for him and from what I read briefly, uh kind of changed the movie uh, drastically and made it a better movie as a result, a more uh, interesting movie. But again, I haven't seen it, but the Blu-ray is on the way to my house right now. All right. <laughs> uh, now we're in the eighties though. And uh, we're going to come on to some I- iconic stuff for him, I guess. Uh, but Rumblefish, you know, he comes back to work with uh, Coppola again on Rumblefish, which is a fantastic, fascinating movie. I, I think Hopper is a guy that's always going to be, or always was going to be, drawn to the avant-garde and this is certainly that uh and it kind of felt like in that way him and coppola were meant for each other because coppola was even still i mean he's 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 on his own trip with how he wants to make movies and how he wants to operate in the business you know right and you know when when rumblefish came out it was sort of 
build as like the back half of the double bill that started with the outsiders. I mean, those, those two movies were very, they're both, you know, uh, S.E. Hinton adaptations and they're, they're, um, they share a lot of DNA and they're very, um, paired in people's minds, but, but the outsiders was, um, a, a somewhat more conventional, um, not a Brat Pack movie, but Brat, Brat Pack adjacent, um, uh, an easier story to to give to audiences and Rumblefish. It's black and white. It's much more artistic. It's it's um, it, it feels like Coppola really um, not being self indulgent, but but indulging his appetite to do something strange in a way that he did not necessarily indulge it on The Outsiders. And so there's Dennis Hopper. You know? Totally. It might as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but I like that movie a lot. And by then you start to get the sense that Hopper is someone who, um, is really interestingly elastic. Like he's a distinctive presence, but he's also someone who, uh, if he trusts the director, whether it's Coppola or, or Vim Vendors or, you know, even, uh, Henry Hathaway on on True Grit. He's someone who's really willing to give himself over to the specific language and vision that a director is um, advancing in a movie. 86 is a huge year for him. He's got like six movies that year. Uh, He's he's apparently said that he never turned a role down during this stretch, and it certainly seems like it. Uh, But the big ones, obviously, are Hoosiers, which he was nominated for, and Blue Velvet, which somehow he was not nominated for. Right. This is like the 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 pivotal year in in Hopper's in, in the in the sort of making of the image that Hopper would carry through the rest of his career. And yes, you're you're right. It's those two movies and there was a lot of uh discussion at the time whether I mean it it felt like pretty sure that Hopper was going to get his first acting oscar nomination unless he canceled himself out because he he would have been considered for supporting actor for both blue velvet and hoosiers and i think people knew that it could go either way and yet there was still a little bit of a surprise um when the way it went was hoosiers because uh, Hoosiers is a nice movie. It did not have much of uh, a release or a huge national profile. And the Oscar campaign um, around it, uh, as I recall, was entirely centered on the possibility that Hopper would get nominated. Like he was that movie's chance. Whereas um, with Blue Velvet, there was tremendous critical support for it uh for best picture on down and and there was a sense that uh the movie was going to be a really interesting test case for uh the academy membership because you know there were absolutely people who were saying oh they are not going to touch blue velvet with uh, a 10 foot pole. I mean, it's way too weird and creepy and strange for them. They're going to completely snub David Lynch. It will not get any nominations. And so the, the people who, who believed that were, you know, they probably felt they were right when, um, Hopper got nominated for Hoosiers, uh, instead. Um, 
but the Academy did recognize David Lynch. Um, I mean, they they did nominate him for uh, best director, so they they weren't right in that way. But I think I think there was a feeling um, in '86. The vibe around Hopper was, wow, he's been working for a long time, and he's so good. And it, it's one of those kind of magical things, like when. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis arrived in My Beautiful Laundrette and uh, A Room with a View, literally in New York on the same day. Um, you know, there's nothing showier you can do um, as an actor than to kind of make this simultaneous impression in two wildly different roles. And that's one thing that Hopper did, because, of course, his role in Hoosiers could not be more different than uh, his role in Blue Velvet. And, and so... I mean, Blue Velvet obviously would have been a critical sensation no matter what, and Hopper certainly would have been noticed no matter what uh, in it. But to have Hoosiers as well, it was the first moment when people really sort of said, okay, the, we got to take this guy really seriously. He's he's so impressive, and he can do so many different things. Yeah, and I don't actually like Hoosiers, by the way. Like, I, I don't, it, it, you watch that movie, and it's like interspersed with the basketball stuff. It seems like Gene Hackman and, and, uh, uh, Oh geez, Beverly. Uh, is it Beverly D'Angelo? No, not Beverly, Beverly. D'Angelo. Ugh, the right stuff. Not Beverly. Um, is it Kathleen Quinlan? Was she in Barbara Hershey? Oh, Barbara Hershey, right? Oh, sorry to forget Barbara Hershey. Sorry, Barbara. Barbara Hershey. But the, every time I look up, it's like Gene Hackman and Barbara Hershey walking through the woods, uh, talking. It's it's to me. I, I just it, it's like the role got the nomination more than the performance because he plays this the town drunk who's kind of like uh, gets a chance to be the uh, assistant coach and there's a redemption arc. Although he has a moment of uh, falling off the wagon and and then the character kind of disappears in the big uh, yeah, rah rah stretch at the end. So anyway. I don't think that that he would have gotten that nomination if blue velvet had not existed. Um, and that makes sense. It shows the range. Right. Right. I mean, it put him in, in uh, people's minds to consider as a serious actor, which, you know, was absolutely well-deserved, but yeah, when you, when you go back now, if he had gotten the nomination for blue velvet instead, I don't think that would raise any eyebrows at all. I mean, you, you would think of course, you know, unbelievably. Yeah. Uh, showy role in a fantastic movie. And this year he was also in a movie called River's Edge. Have you seen that? Yes, yes. And wow. and, and that's another, I mean, R River's Edge is a movie that's really, really worth seeing or, or revisiting if you haven't seen it in a long time. And and um, it, it was just, it was, I don't remember what his fourth, fifth, and sixth movies were that year, <laughs> but, but th those three, I mean, that'd really be... Uh, a career year for for any um any actor you know any character actor or supporting actor that's that's pretty remarkable yeah one of them was texas chainsaw massacre 2 <laughs> probably oh, range yeah that that one probably did not get a lot of best supporting actor votes but <laughs> no but river's edge is interesting people might not even just realize that this is he was in this movie with keanu reeves and and it's weird the characters don't really interact Although there is one scene where they're in the same shot. There's like a rack, literally a rack focus from Keanu to Dennis in the back. And he's got this funny line about beer, not about Heineken's, but uh, he, he uh, they're in this movie together and people probably forget that because of just how, because most of his interactions are with Crispin Glover in the film. 
Right. And it's funny because when that happens, when there are two actors in the same movie, but they don't cross over you and you ask them about it later, the answer can be anything from like, oh, yeah, we got to be best friends on that movie because the production took forever and we were sitting around to like, nope, never met him. You know, <laughs> totally. Very cool movie. People should check that out if they haven't seen it. Um, cool might not be the word. It's talk about disaffected youth. I mean, it's it, yeah, it's, it's very striking. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very it's grim and it's striking and you know, yeah. He went on to direct Colors with Robert Duvall and Sean Penn in '88. It's about cops in South LA. Um, haven't seen it in a long time, but it's kind of the beginnings of a stretch of films like uh you know new jack city boys in the hood would come later when actually black filmmakers were telling these stories but uh right uh and and um robert i mean robert duvall is a very very showy dramatic scene at the end and um one thing you get from colors is probably not a surprise at all hopper was really good with actors yeah yeah absolutely and he went on to the hot spot a couple of years later. I was, I was watching that last night because I haven't seen it in forever. And uh, it's it's so weird. It's like it's sort of an elevated B movie. Uh, this hot house noir, you know, with Don Johnson and Virginia Madsen and a young right. Jennifer Connelly. And uh, I was reading Don. Have you seen it? The hot spot? I vaguely remember it as sort of one of those Vestron video style Venetian blind neo-noirs. Totally. 100 yeah. percent i mean it's like you know there was another one later palmetto with woody harrelson like that kind of a movie um but it's what i read was that mike figgis had written a script called the hot spot that was like a heist movie this is what don johnson said and that like three days before production hopper comes in with this script that was written by a guy that was adapted from an old book that the script had originally been written for robert mitchum years before and he's like, this is what we're going to do instead. Now, that sounds kind of crazy for something like that to happen three days before production. But this was what Don Johnson said. And uh, so who knows how apocryphal it is. But point being, it never it seems like there's never a dull moment when uh, Hopper is in charge, I guess, you know. Absolutely true. And 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 yet he's still he's also, you know, doing kind of interesting, serious prestige work like i i know that just a couple of years before um speed is uh paris trout and mm -hmm. you know we th this is paris trout is like a genre that has um almost been forgotten now which is like the early 90s extremely high-end pre-streaming cable movie um but but paris trout was like based on a really really well-respected novel by pete dexter um uh hopper was the star of it it's a very dramatic intense story uh it's a villainous character um but but it's a, it's a really serious uh movie um he got an emmy nomination um i think his only one for the performance and and it was it's sort of a, a good benchmark of the um esteem in which the industry was starting to hold him post blue velvet i've never seen that one actually uh steven gyllenhaal though directed it yeah it's really like super well made you know um like it's it's a good movie these, these a lot of those made for cable films are hard to find now um but but it 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 belongs in his filmography you know it's 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 really serious committed work 
same year he did Indian Runner with uh, Sean Penn, which I haven't seen in ages. Uh, Sean Penn directing. Um, we're getting close to speed. There's there's some early '90s stuff. Boiling Point with Wesley Snipes, Red Rock, Red Rock West, John Dahl. Uh, Dennis Hopper's so at home in that kind of movie. I feel like. Right, and you can start to feel in the way that resume unfolds that like after Blue Velvet, everybody wanted him. Like there's a yeah. whole generation of like neo-noir directors or whatever that's thinking like, oh, I got to get Dennis Hopper for my movie. It's, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, he his his career had by that point um, ascended to the point where like he could lend a smaller project credibility of a kind by his presence. Was he ever in a Coen Brothers movie? I guess not. Gosh. He should have been. Yeah, it seems like a sort of uh, adjacent universe, you know? Yeah. Um, like there's a world where they make their first movie a few years later and they cast him instead of M. Emmett Walsh or something, you know? Right, yeah. right. It's interesting. Uh, before we get to speed, though, in 1993, I just have to say this because uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie is uh, making a billion dollars worldwide and everything right now. Uh, but. Before Jack Black, there was Dennis Hopper as Bowser, although his name was Koopa. Uh, it's like King Koopa or something in, in that movie. Super Mario Brothers, uh, <laughs> terrible, terrible movie. John Leguizamo, uh, Bob Hoskins as the Mario Brothers. And uh, I mean, have you seen it? I, I imagine you did I have, back then. I know. You know you what? You see it? No, because that was like... Uh, I, I was working at Entertainment Weekly then. Uh, uh -huh. I, I was in charge of movie coverage, and I guarantee you it was not even the most interesting movie of that week like <laughs> yeah i'm not sure what week it came out but but whatever that week was my mind was on some other movie <laughs> yeah it's it's bad it's quite bad and i guess maybe the first real video game movie in a sense but at a time when they weren't putting money into that kind of a thing like right i mean that's probably why i didn't see it even even within the job i had because uh the idea that uh a video game movie would be anything but a, a quickly forgotten throwaway i mean it was just you know that, that was a completely degraded idea to do a, a movie based on a video game in in 1993 so yeah i'll say this much it's not worth watching sober but uh <laughs> otherwise it it can be fun anyway the next year finally here we are speed uh as I said, the last episode, we talk about uh, the kind of whirlwind uh, casting for this. Uh, everybody turned it down. Gary Oldman, uh, Jeff Bridges. Uh, there's there's a list of names. Uh, Christopher Walken was like a hair's breadth away from uh, playing the role, but he wanted some time off after a film he had just shot, and they needed the guy to go immediately. And they end up with Dennis Hopper, who... I think is the best possible uh, choice because he had played uh, villain roles, obviously um, up to this point, but nothing like this or in a movie like this. What I like to say is that there's this line in the movie where he calls De uh, Keanu Reeves a punk. It's like at the very, toward the very end in the, in the subway, he he's like walking out of a door with uh, Sandra Bullock held hostage. And he says punk. And I love that because if it's 30 years earlier, Dennis Hopper's the punk. Right. So it's so like this passing. It yeah. It's like this passing of the punk torch to the guy who's about to be Mr. Cyberpunk and Johnny Mnemonic in the matrix and stuff. And I don't know. I, I like to say that when you are obsessed with a movie, as much as I am with this one, you maybe start to see things that are not there, but 
I, I like that bit anyway. But the point is, yeah. they're interesting foils. I mean, here's Keanu Reeves and a guy who is Mr. Method. And they just make such a dynamic uh, pairing for a movie that needed something like that. Um, do you remember at the time, like, what, what was the vibe around Hopper being in a movie like this? Well, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a, a whole period from, like, the, the late 80s to the mid-90s. And remembering just... You know, which you can now look back on as a kind of time of extremely proficient, you know, like action suspense entertainments of which, you know, the the one to which your podcast is devoted is obviously a, a, a great one. Um, but so much hinged on whether you had a great villain and a great actor to play the villain i mean if you if you think back now you know uh, bruce willis in die hard is still bruce willis in die hard but is die hard die hard without alan rickman i mean is is uh in the line of fire in the line of fire without john malkovich like if you got a really really spectacular actor to do that part um your the whole movie was elevated, you know, including the heroism of your heroes or your hero and heroine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think Hopper for me was that kind of get in in um in speed. And obviously the the actors that you talked about uh in the previous podcast, the ones who turned it down or or almost took it, I mean, you know, uh Christopher Walken, uh, Gary Oldman, those those were actors uh, of a caliber. So they also that, wanted Robert Duvall, by the way. That, that's somebody they really wanted. Right. I mean, those would have all been very, very memorable. But but it's it's interesting that um, Hopper just, I you know, it, this is always tricky because you you it's cheating in a way to say, well, in hindsight, of course, he's he's the only one who could have done it, or he's the perfect one, but. But he he seems really right because um, aside from the fact that he could he can do menace and villainy and evil you know in his sleep by this point there is a kind of um, lightness to him he he knows that uh, he knows that speed isn't like this huge plunge into darkness you know and he he just finds this way of of playing the part that seems to in some ways speak the same language as Keanu Reeves it's I mean as different as they are as actors um Hopper really gets what the tone of speed is supposed to be Mm -hmm. and and so he is as good a villain as you could want in the movie but he doesn't um he doesn't overweight it uh you know he doesn't play it the way um uh, you might think of playing a villain in a much darker and grimmer movie, you know? Yeah, he brings a lot of energy to it that wasn't necessarily there either. Um, you know, Joss Whedon told me that some of the lines he wrote were kind of written to be portrayed a little meekly like this, because his big pitch was he wanted Charles Grodin to play this role. Because <laughs> he just wanted to, like a nerd who was kind of quiet, but clearly a psychopath. 
And then Dennis Hopper gets a hold of that line and it just becomes something else entirely. And, and so he, he would uh, really just sort of um, improvise uh, tonally on set a lot and just go different places with a line. And that's what it needed. I mean, it needed that spark and he's awesome. I mean, I've, I've always loved him in this movie. Um, I, I think he's, uh, again, he's just such an interesting foil for Keanu. Uh, he is to go through all of those actors and then end up with him. I mean, it's just such serendipity to me. Like, Oh, well, we, I guess we're going to have to go with Dennis Hopper. Like, are you kidding me? Like that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a really weird assignment too, right? Like playing this kind of part because you you've got to be like the 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 audience has to be really um, uh, rooting for you to die, preferably in some visible and horrible applause generating <laughs> way, and yet it also has to enjoy every minute you're on screen. Um, yeah. So and and you know I don't think it's necessarily uh easy to do that you you can you can often pull off the first with the aid of the script it's it's harder to pull off the first and the second at the same time but hopper's really fun to watch like Mm -hmm. you you know he's he's an inventive interesting actor and and so he's just a pleasure to watch in speed and he definitely goes out in an applause generating way (laughs) my god yes not back for the sequel (laughs) Which I've said, but it, I w- that had that spoiled for me uh, before I even saw the movie. Uh, a guy in baseball practice was like, Dennis Hopper gets his head knocked off at the end. But this was before spoiler culture being a thing. So I was just like even more excited to see the movie. I was like, what? Really? I can't wait. So anyway. Right. And the, like then the next year you have um, uh, uh, seven. So I guess like there's a little yeah. mid-90s beheading thing happening. <laughs> yeah. Things got dark. Uh, but since we're on speed before we kind of sprint to the finish on his career, uh, what do you have to say about that movie? I mean, uh, not to put you on the spot, but like, uh, this is what I'm doing here. Right. So I'm, I'm getting people to talk speed? about speed. Yeah. Oh gosh. You know, I, uh, I love speed. I mean, I was, um, I, I was on, um, you know, uh, another podcast, uh, screen drafts. Uh, a while ago and we we were a couple of us were picking the best i i think the i think the topic we had was um a pick like the seven best directorial debuts of the 90s and um speed was like such an easy pick for me um because because you you see a lot of those movies from uh the 30 years ago that it's an awkward age for movies in some ways. Like they haven't, they haven't aged all the way for a lot of people to being like classics that you can appreciate from a distance of, you know, many, many generations. Um, But they're not, they're not new enough to be new. And so you see some movies from that period and you're like, Oh, this is technically so much clumsier than I thought it would be. Or wow, the attitudes in this are really actually offensive or, Oh my God, these jokes are so corny. Speed is just, so much fun to watch it's it's such a a pleasure to see unfold it's so economical like it's a really tight movie um you know we were not then in the era where directors felt they had to give everybody two hours and 35 minutes in order to feel that they had you know gotten their money's worth and so i i think i i mean i was i i re-watched it for this other podcast and i was really just surprised I, like within a few minutes i just stopped taking notes and started to watch it again and enjoy it it's, it's so much fun 
it really does belong in that conversation of debuts. Uh, people just forget, I think, maybe, or, or they don't realize or, or whatever. I mean, obviously, Jan de Bont was a DP and had a huge uh, impact on the aesthetic that he was kind of finally directing a movie and bringing into that aesthetic. But uh, he directs the hell out of that movie, and the camera's always where it needs to be, and... You know, we recently lost the editor, John Wright, but I, I spoke to him and he was like, the movie just came together. It just melted together. Like, because when you got a thousand cameras on stuff, like you're going to have a wealth of footage to choose from. But it was like Jan was ready to do something like this. And this was just the perfect vehicle, uh, no pun intended, for that to happen, I think. So, yeah. And it just has that great thing that you that's partly luck and partly immense skill that everybody involved seems to be like on the same page, making the same movie, doing the same thing after mm -hmm. the same effect. And and that's a, that's a great thing when it happens. Totally. Just to wrap up with uh, Dennis here uh, after he comes out of speed, he does water world uh, plays the bad guy in that uh, does a movie carried away Basquiat. Perfect for him. Um, just King of the Hill, he shows up in King of the Hill in an episode. <laughs> uh, I'm just looking at just the 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 wide variety of stuff. And, and always so many movies that I'm like, never heard of it, never heard of it. Um, he just kept going. Uh, Ed TV. One interesting story here is that he did, he was going to do the Truman Show. I guess he was probably shooting it. And he was in the Ed Harris role and uh, left really? over create. Yeah, he left over creative differences. I'm just like, what was that? Like, I'd love to know more about that. Um, because Peter Weir, you know, not a volatile personality. So I just wonder what what that was all about. Right, and I, it, that's surprising because, um, you know, the 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 vision of that movie is so clear. So 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 much of it seems so much of the the creativeness of it seems just deeply built into the script, and also. Potentially, what a great role for Hopper. I mean, it was a great yeah. role for Ed Harris. Um, uh, it's a really good part. So, yeah, I don't know anything about that. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, there's, it's interesting, too, because Ed Harris is one of the guys that turned down the role in Speed. <laughs> Although that might have been when the character was, there was a period where the Jeff Daniels character was the bad guy, ultimately was revealed to be the bomber. And so I think it might have been during that period. He, he turned it down twice, in fact. But yeah, I'm just looking at Hopper's IMDb after this, and it's he never had another big kind of marquee movie or, or role after that. It doesn't seem. Yeah, no, no, it's odd. And he, you know, it, and he didn't have another Oscar nomination after um, after '86. You, you know, it. it yeah, it's it's interesting. Some some TV in here. He did twenty four. Right. He's in the Crow Wicked Prayer. I mean, like what? Yeah, I mean, you 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 can say the the maybe he he uh, lowered his value in a way by um, doing too much. Uh, but but maybe. But it's the, not like I really like to work so. It's hard to say he saturated things either because it's like you didn't know this was going on. You, no one saw these movies. Um, right, right. So he shows up in Elegy with Ben Kingsley eventually, uh, which was so sort of his last notable film role. And then he did the Crash series, which he was in for like the whole, he had a major role in that series, the kind of spinning off of the movie. 
the Paul Haggis movie, not the right. Uh, who did the other one? Cronenberg. But then I, I think a lot of uh, I, I think a lot of people saw the Crash series. I mean, yeah, it pretty, like it was, it was like, like Stars or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was his last big thing, and uh, and then of course posthumously he, he would be in the other side of the wind along with a lot of other people posthumously, <laughs> right. But uh, and, and and then, like I said, he passed away in 2010. Prostate cancer caught up with him, and that was it for for Dennis Hopper. And I I just think this. I go back and I look at interviews that he did. He just seems like a guy I would have loved to have talked to. Uh, you know, Jack Nicholson had this line that conversation is the elixir of life. And you look at Dennis Hopper talking to people, and you just get that vibe. Like there was never any ego about what he had to say, although he had plenty to say that you would think somebody could have an ego about. He, he would have a lot to say about famous people, but it never felt like he's dropping names. It's right. just this guy was was a fixture of American pop culture for a long time. And oh, like, yeah, worked, worked for like 55 years, tons of movies, tons of TV. There's probably no one in the business who he was more than like three degrees away from. Yeah, I, and just... It's so funny to me that he apparently had all these dust-ups with people because, I mean, look, maybe he was just great in front of a camera being interviewed, but he just seemed like a likable guy. I mean, he seemed like a, a guy who certainly probably had, uh, you know, uh, was uncompromising in certain ways, and, and I could see that being an issue artistically, but he just seemed like salt of the earth in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, so you never know. I'm sure he had his dark... His dark yeah. spots, but but you never interviewed him. No, I never did. Never did. Well, like I say, that's the biggest regret of this show, and I'm trying to get people talking about him as much as I can. So thank you for coming on and helping to contextualize him and just do a deep dive into Dennis Hopper. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks again for having me. That's Mark Harris, everyone. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. Let's take a bit of a breather before Speed heads into production. I remember seeing it at the cinema when it came out and it felt super fresh and it still felt fresh when I saw it last week. It just moves and moves and it's so clever. I talked to author and journalist Nick DeSimlian, whose recent book, The Last Action Heroes, sets up the action movie canon Speed would ultimately join. Yeah, it's, I think it's just a fascinating period of Hollywood history. It's so excessive. I mean, the 80s was excessive, but this just felt like the natural place to go if you are telling outrageous stories about outrageous people. Where does Keanu Reeves fit in with the Planet Hollywood set? And how would the 1990s give way to a new breed of action superstar? You can draw a line from Bruce Willis's John McClane to Jack Traven quite clearly. Keanu in Speed is like an evolution of that. It pushes it even further. He's an ordinary guy. Like when he arrives and he's there in the, the kind of the group of SWAT guys, he doesn't stand out. It's like if you had Arnold coming in, everyone is looking at Arnold, but Keanu kind of blends in a little bit. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.